Welcome to Health Matters at Sargent College. The mission of Sargent College is to advance, preserve, disseminate, and apply knowledge in the health and rehabilitation sciences. BU's Sargent College strives to create an environment that fosters critical and innovative thinking to best serve the healthcare needs of society. Each episode of Health Matters at Sargent College will include faculty, students, or alumni who will share their knowledge with you. I'm Karen Jacobs, the Associate Dean of Digital Learning and Innovation at Sargent College, and I'll be your moderator for each episode. Today's episode of Health Matters at Sargent College, we have two guests. Uh, one guest is a faculty member in speech, language, and pathology, and the other guest is his postdoc. So please welcome them. Hi, I'm Tyler Parashan. I'm faculty here at BU. I'm a professor of speech, language, and hearing sciences. Uh, the research in my lab looks at the brain bases of language and communication and how those are different in individuals who struggle with uh, developmental communication disorders like dyslexia. Hi, I'm Gabrielle Ann Torre, and I am uh, Dr. Parishan's postdoctoral fellow. I am currently completing my training with him in communication science disorders, and specifically in his lab, I've been working on exactly what he just said, um, questions on the neuroanatomical, so the neuroanatomy of the brain, correlates of reading, reading behaviors, and how those might differ in cases like dyslexia. So this is so interesting. Tell us about how this can be actualized to real-world um, understanding of the work that you're doing. Yeah, so a really fascinating thing about reading impairment is that it has a biological basis. So there's something in the brain that's different in children who struggle to learn to read, the way many children you know, succeed during elementary school in learning to read. But because reading is this technology that humans have invented over the last you know, really hundreds or thousands of years, it hasn't had time for evolution to select for brains that are good readers or poor readers. So whatever's going on in the brain of individuals with dyslexia has to be something that stands in the way of learning to read well but that isn't specific to reading. And we want to understand what that could possibly be, whether it's something about brain anatomy, about brain plasticity, about the structure or function of the brain. Uh, and this is where Gabrielle has taken a real lead on this project. So we've just picked up a grant from the NIH to study a sample of more than 1,000 brains of children and adults age 4 to 40 who do or don't have dyslexia. It's the largest sample of dyslexic and non-dyslexic brains that have ever been assembled. And what we're going to do with this sample is we're going back to some of the core questions in the neuroanatomy of dyslexia, the differences in brain structure in dyslexia, and saying, you know, this was true when they looked at eight brains or 20 brains or 40 brains, but is it true when we look at a thousand brains? Can we see something in the structure of the brain that tells us who will or will not struggle with reading development? And Gabrielle has been doing a great job looking at a, a whole panoply of these kinds of questions. How prevalent is dyslexia? Let me start with that. It's a good question. So the current estimates are about 5 to 12% um, of individuals having dyslexia. 
And that's kind of actually pretty staggering when you think of how many people you may sit in a classroom with when you grow up in school. You could imagine that you look around at your classmates when you're a child, and if 5 to 12% of them have dyslexia, that's a decent number or a handful of children in the room who are going to have this inherent achievement gap growing up. So that goes back to your first question of how these things become translated into the real world. If we have a better understanding of what the brain bases of this specific reading disability are, then perhaps that can be better used to target interventions later on down the road for these children. Are you working with other um, professionals in this area, or is it now um, mostly tied to speech, language, and pathology? Do you see maybe working with special ed teachers in the future, occupational therapists, other people who are working with um, this age population, what you said, 4 to 40? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. The field is very interdisciplinary because when you're a parent and your child is coming home from school and they're frustrated and they're struggling to learn to read, it's not immediately clear who you want to turn to, right? So there's the teacher who's the first choice. There's your pediatrician. Where are you going to look for information on why my child is behind, even when they're a bright, intelligent, you know, outgoing excited, motivated individual, but something about the printed word is standing in the way of their achievement. And so this kind of investigation is richly multidisciplinary. Uh, our investigative team includes speech pathologists, but also um, individuals who have a background in educational psychology, uh, people who have degrees in medicine, people who are themselves teachers. So we're just the more people who know what is and isn't the science of dyslexia, the better information we can get to individuals and their parents who are struggling through this. Related to that, uh, Tyler recently sent me a really interesting news clipping um, from the New York Times about how the state of Mississippi has achieved um, significant gains in children in their reading achievement because seemingly they've implemented the science of reading into how they teach reading. And so I think that the more our research can bring on board and interact with these people from other disciplines like education, um, the more people in the world have a general understanding of what is actually happening in the brain while one reads and how that can be used in the classroom. So your lab is so interesting. Um, Findings before um, this major study that you're doing now, can you share some of those findings that you have already? Yeah. So there, there were two kind of major studies uh, that we did early in the work in my lab and, and during my doctoral training at MIT. Uh, one was looking at um, something called plasticity in the brains of individuals with and without dyslexia. And we're interested in how the brain rapidly adapts to things that it encounters in the environment. So when you're in a room, some things are usually very much the same. The air conditioner is making the same noise, the walls are the same color. The brain doesn't need to be processing all this information that's the same. It needs to look for things that are new, for things that are changing. And so we took uh, children and adults who did or didn't have dyslexia and we scanned their brains while they were doing tasks where either things were very much the same from moment to moment or when th things were changing very rapidly. There was a lot of difference from moment to moment. And what we found is that individuals without dyslexia, when the thing they're seeing or hearing is the same over and over again, their brain adapts. So the amount of functional activation to the chain or to the, to the stimulus is reduced. The brain is like, okay, I've got this. I can take it easy. 
But in dyslexia, there was less of a difference between the rapidly changing condition and the condition where everything was the same. It was like the brain was spending a lot of time and energy to process all of the information that was the same from moment to moment. And that's expensive for the brain, and it can stand in the way of learning, which is what we think is part of the problem when children struggle to learn to read. And how about coming to Tyler's lab as a postdoc? What has that been like? And um, is there a special objective that you're hoping to accomplish while there as well? So coming to Tyler's lab has been really fun. Uh, as he mentioned, it's a very multidisciplinary group of scientists. And so we are working with other students and trainees who have different interests um, ranging from speech language and for myself reading and so I've noticed even in giving practice talks that while his doctoral work was in reading reading is still new to some of the other students and so I'm feeling like I teach them about some things and the best part is that I feel like I learn a lot about speech and language from them and a lot about methods as well and returning to this idea of methods and back to the idea of what a large sample size we are working with. 1,200 brains is not small potatoes. And so one nice objective that I have is to become better with methods because in our field, which uses neuroimaging or quite literally taking pictures of brains and brain anatomy and its function, it's advancing very rapidly. And so there is this need to keep up in the field with the methods and the analyses that we use to account for how variable brains are. And so I'd like to become better at that and try to learn more about that side of things. So maybe talk a little bit about you know this brain imaging. I think it's absolutely fascinating. So what's that equipment like? Yeah, brain, brain imaging is one of two technologies that has really um, exploded our ability to look into the human mind and human brain and figure out what's going on in there. Uh, the other is a technology called optogenetics, which is they're only doing in um, mice and rodents for the most part, not in people yet. Fortunately, unfortunately. But brain imaging, uh, especially functional magnetic resonance imaging, lets us see the structure and the function of the brain while it's doing tasks, while it's reading, while it's thinking about people, while it's looking at faces or hearing sounds, while you're thinking about what you want to do later. We can really kind of look into the mind and say, you know, where is this activity happening? What are the mental representations like? And not just the technology to let us take those pictures, but now the technology that lets us analyze those pictures has just really jumped off the rails in my career. Uh, we can now look at the pattern of activation across the brain and say things about what kind of thing somebody was seeing. So just looking at the pattern of brain activation, we can say, oh, they were seeing a face, they were seeing a house. We can say which speech sounds they were hearing, what words they were listening to uh, through things like pattern classification. And so using these advanced computational techniques really lets us ask new questions in ways that we couldn't, well, you know, just five years ago. And Boston University and the whole Boston academic environment is really at the forefront of all of this. So BU just put in the new Cognitive Neuroaging Center with our three Tesla scanner. It's one of four new scanners to have gone in uh, to be installed in Boston over the last five years. MIT has two scanners. Harvard has a scanner. Northeastern has a scanner. MGH has four. So Boston is really the probably the world's hub of uh, advanced imaging technology 
uh, and development. And it's just very exciting to be here and doing this kind of research. In fact, the data set that we have with a thousand brains wouldn't have been possible anywhere else. But here, I could go to my colleagues like Nadine Gobb at Children's Hospital or John Gabrielli at MIT or Joanna Christodoulou at MGH and say, hey, would you share the scans that you've done with us? And by working together, this large collaboration, we've been able to ask questions that we just couldn't answer with eight or 40 brains. That's fabulous. Um, the collaboration um, is remarkable. And I'm sure you know your reputation precedes you where you can make these requests and people are very happy to share with you. What questions, new questions, do you think are on the horizon? And what are you excited about um, with, with this large data base that you're going to have? Well, one of the most important questions is dyslexia, in dyslexia is that the brain changes. The brain develops. It's, the brains of children is different than the brains of teenagers, is different than the brains of adults. And having a sample that lets us go from age 4 to 40 really lets us explore uh, different questions at different points in time, which is going to be, I think, critical to understanding how children learn to read and also how they struggle to learn to read. I think that another thing that we're eager to find out is whether or not brain anatomy is actually related to um, our individual differences in reading ability. I think that's one thing that we're really able to tackle with this database um, because we have so many different measures of reading and reading-related measures like your phonological working memory. Is the neuroanatomy of the brain actually related to these individual differences in skill? So for someone that doesn't know some of this terminology, mm -hmm. could you tell me what that meant? <laughs> <laughs> so when we study reading ability, we target this ability with a variety of measures. One of the most simple measures to think about is simply single real word reading. So you present someone with a list of words, and that can range in words as easy as cat, like the animal to difficult words like satiate, words that are difficult to sound out. You could imagine that, for instance, in someone with dyslexia, that might be very difficult. Even for someone without dyslexia who is not a skilled reader yet, perhaps doesn't have a lot of experience, and going back to what Tyler said about age, a young reader, the word satiate really doesn't appear in our vocabularies until quite later on. And so using lists of words, lists of words that are actually not real words, um, one Tyler has used before is shabernazzle. These oh, are my called, God. What yes. does that mean? <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> oh, that's a Tyler word? You made it, it up? It is a Tyler is, word. Is, so if, if you have a child who's struggling with learning mm -hmm. to read, um, you'll go to an educational psychologist or a speech pathologist, um, and they'll perform um, a number of different tests. And some of these tests include repeating back silly words, nonsense words. And uh, it's an index of something called phonological working memory. And people who struggle to repeat back longer words, so like plurp is an easy one, but shabernazzle is a hard one. Uh, it's hard to remember. It's hard to say. And kids who struggle with language development struggle with uh, repeating these longer non-words. It's a very short but very diagnostic test of children with uh, language and reading impairments. So because learning words and learning longer words is at the core of language development. A test like this can tell us a lot about children who struggle, but it can't really tell us why, because it's the same sort of thing that they're struggling to do. So, you know, it's apples to apples, and we're not, we're not getting at the crooks of the problem. Uh, so we'd love to know whether this kind of ability is 
correlated with any differences in brain structure or function. And that's, that's a core mission in our laboratory. Great. And sorry about that word. I already forgot it. Exactly. <laughs> so that, um, but it's really important because I'm an occupational therapist, so I'm not familiar with some of the the um, terminology that you were using. So that was really helpful. So I want to ask you, Gabrielle, how mm-hmm. long will you be in the lab? Right now, my fellowship for training in communication science disorders is for two years, and I've been here for maybe half a year. Half a year. Half a year. So I have one and a half more years to answer all these questions, but. Um, in academia, of course, you want to write grants. And so another big mission we have is to write a grant. Um, very likely, um, and almost 99.9% um, likely that it will be related to reading and dyslexia. Great. So, So you had said that your background was in reading. So what was your degree mm-hmm. in? So I did my PhD with Dr. Guinevere Eden at Georgetown University in neuroscience. But the work that I did was very similar to what I'm doing now in that it's human cognitive neuroscience. So all the work that I did as a graduate student studied humans and uh, cognitive abilities, specifically reading. Great. So one thing I wanted to ask is for people who are listening to our podcast and are finding this absolutely fascinating, which I am as well, what advice do you have for them breaking into this field? You know, what would you suggest they get an undergrad degree in, think about, you know, the next steps, and learning more about um, this fascinating area? For undergraduate students who are interested in brain research or in brain research related to uh, language impairment and dyslexia, there's a lot of different avenues. And there's no right answer. So speech language pathology is a great course. Uh, Psychology is a great course of study. Education is a good course of study. Neuroscience. But really, with the way technology is going, everyone who wants to do advanced research in this area should emphasize quantitative skills, things like statistics, things like computer programming, things like math, which are things that we don't usually think of when we're thinking about how to uh, teach and treat disorders of reading. But on the science side, the quantitative aspects are very important. So getting some good background in those things, especially computer science, is key. And then working in a laboratory, finding a laboratory where you have a good mentorship model, where they're going to help you through it, they're going to let you do some of your own projects. Uh, you can do a thesis, you can discover things on your own. And sticking with that lab for, you know, three to a full year of, of coursework is going to be really helpful in building that relationship that's going to launch you into uh, future graduate training. Yes, I agree completely. So my undergraduate model sounds exactly like what Tyler just described. So I did my bachelor's in neuroscience and cognitive science and did exactly what he described in that I found a lab that was studying things I was interested in, found the opportunity to do an independent thesis and stuck around for about two to three years to make sure that I really understood the data of the lab, really had time to be a part of different projects, got to build a good relationship with my mentor. And I think the really critical thing, if you're an undergraduate, especially like here at BU where there are so many opportunities to be a part of research, I would say that if you're a goal-oriented student, um, don't be afraid, especially in your senior year, to ask for a thesis opportunity or an independent research opportunity since those are available to you here so that you can have the ability to ask your own questions, and then when you're applying to graduate school, demonstrate that 
you have the ability not just to work with data and be a research assistant, but to actually formulate ideas and be curious about something. That's great advice. And there's so many opportunities at Boston University and at the College of uh, Health and Rehabilitation Sciences, Sargent College, to do this. Thank you both for being um, guests on our podcast, Health Matters at Sargent College. This was really fascinating. And we'll have at the end um, some uh, emails that people can reach you to ask any additional questions. So thank you again. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Karen. Thank you.